The holidays are almost here, and that means you're about to get a heck of a lot busier. And the data reflects what you know to be true. Prior to COVID, Yelp observed a 17% increase in diners seated from October to December over the prior quarter. And that was before everyone was trapped in their houses for over a year. Capitalize on that increased demand this holiday season with the all-new Yelp Guest Manager. Yelp Guest Manager allows you to manage your guest reservations and your waitlist all in one place. Better yet, it's fee-free until February of 2022 with an annual agreement. Visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast to learn more today. Now here we go. We never do a tasting for a new dish that goes on the menu without seeing the food cost sheet. Because there's no point tasting and finding out we love it and it's 46% food cost. So it's like, let's find out what it costs to make the dish. Let's get it plated the way it should look for the guest. And then let's taste it. And then let's start talking about it. We account for everything down to the penny, whether it's a piece of parsley or anything else. And that's what you have to do in this business. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. We've spent the last 15 months together questioning every assumption about this industry. What I've learned from more than 100 interviews is that a 6% net profit doesn't need to be the standard. I've collected the best practices from the best operators in the world and created a guide detailing the five steps they've all taken to achieve a 15% net profit in their restaurants. You can download that guide for free by visiting restaurantprofitguide.com. Again, that's restaurantprofitguide.com. I'm always amazed when someone with absolutely no prior experience in our industry can open a place and dominate the market. Today, we chat with Dana Schertz of the R&D Group, who did just that. In our conversation, he shares how he was able to take the lessons he learned while scaling Callaway Golf and leverage them to create a hospitality empire. At the end of the day, a lot of components of a successful business are the same. You've got to make money. You've got to make profitable dollars. You've got to get the culture right in your company, and you've got to take care of your employees and your customers. So those things cross over into exactly what we do now. I mean, you can make money in the restaurant business, but if you're not making profitable money, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You're just spinning your wheels. And if you don't get the culture right for your employees, then those employees are not going to turn around and treat your guests the right way. So I guess that's the biggest parallel. And that's really what we focus on is being profitable, getting our culture inside of our company right so that employees like what they do, they feel invested in in who we are, and then they turn around and want to make the guests feel special when they're there. Sounds simple, but it's harder than it sounds, I think. Right. I say it all the time. The simplest things typically aren't easy, right? It can be simple, but not necessarily easy. When you look internally, what skills did you acquire through the sports industry that have served you well in hospitality? Well, I had a lot of different roles in my life at Callaway going around the world, opening distributorships and finding out how people are different in different cultures. I was lucky to work at the right side of Ely Callaway, who's one of the most brilliant business people, if not the most, that I ever got to work with and learn from. And he was really big on 
developing relationships with our customers, not just being transactional, not making the biggest sale, but sometimes taking something off the table and giving the people we were working with a better deal in order so that they would continue to work with us long term. Instead of whether we were dealing with NBC or CBS and buying TV advertising, other people I had worked with in the golf industry, it's like, let's get the lowest price from NBC. And his feeling was, hey, let's make them feel good about working with us and us feel good. And then maybe they'll want to be more helpful to us in the future. And that turned out to be true. I can think in that business, we'd have remnants, which was extra commercials that the networks would need to run. We'd always get those extra spots of TV commercials. And it was because we paid a little bit more for that advertising than some of our competitors who beat them down so much to get the lowest price that they didn't feel compelled to be a good partner with them. So I got to see that, if that makes any sense to you, that creating a good partnership with the people you work with is long-term important. And I think that carries over to the vendor relationships we have, whether that's dealing with West Coast Prime right now when meat prices are going through the roof and you've got to negotiate and have good partners that want to help you and you know you're going to be working with them long-term, specialty produce, all those people that we work with, that we have strong relationships with. We're there to develop the relationship. Yeah, we need good pricing, but at the end of the day, we want to be less transactional and more relationship focused. And we think in the long term, that's probably going to help us. That's a really interesting perspective because when most restaurateurs talk about their professional relationships, they're talking about their relationships with their customers and with their community. And I would argue that at least in my own experience, in large part, the, the relationship with vendors has been somewhat adversarial. So it's a really interesting perspective to say that they are your strategic partners, especially in this moment with so many supply chain shortages. This is where the rubber hits the road and you realize what these relationships are like because their backs against the wall, just like us. After COVID, they're backed up with product or they can't get certain product, whether that's the shipping issues that are happening right now when we're trying to get fish from Japan for Lumi, or as I said, meat prices going through the roof and buying only prime beef for Huntress and Rustic Root. So yeah, the relationships are complicated and we try to to the best of our ability, put ourselves in those vendors' shoes and think about the problems that they're dealing with. And that comes from our consulting background and that we are consultants to the restaurant industry. So when we're talking to other hospitality properties, one of the first things we get into is talking about what's your relationship like with your vendors and who are you dealing with and how are they trying to help you long-term be successful in the industry. So we recognize that those relationships are important. And again, if you think long-term and you plan on working with them for a long time, rather than just being transactional to get the lowest price one time, they'll probably be more flexible and willing to develop that relationship. And we've seen that with our relationship with Southern and Young's for 20 years and how impactful they've been to our business and the help that they've given us. Why the pivot to hospitality? Was golf too easy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Golf was really easy. It's actually golf's doing really well right now. COVID was really good to the golf industry. People realized that they could get out there and be on a golf course and not be around a lot of other people. And so tee times are up and country club memberships are actually thriving for the first time in almost 25 years. But no, I can't say the business was ever easy. It came about, I actually had a friend, a good social friend, James Brennan, and he had already opened up a nightclub called Sidebar. He was planning to open a big nightclub called Stingery. It hadn't been named yet. And I was the first investor with him on that project in a small way. And as our friendship developed, I came into that company and Dev Enterprises as a partner and COO to help grow out the business. And we ended up opening Witherby, Universal, 
Far West and PB, a bunch of other nightclubs. And that relationship with him eventually led to the relationship I have with this new group, RMD. So it was happenstance, I guess, investing in a nightclub. I wouldn't necessarily say that's the smartest thing in the world to do back then, but it was fun. It was a fun project. Stingery was an amazing project to be part of, and it led to where I am today. Well, I think it begs a really interesting question, especially in your position as COO. The conventional wisdom in the industry is that the hospitality industry is different from every other industry out there, that we don't abide by the same rules as everyone else. The traditional rules of business do not apply. And yet you came in from the outside actively in an operational role and created a banger out the gate. And so would you argue that point? Would you say that the traditional rules of business do apply to the hospitality industry? I guess I'm not even sure what the traditional rules of business are. You'd have to tell me what those are. But I would say a lot of successful business practices and operating your fundamentals the right way, paying attention to your P&L and your cash flow and your income statement, knowing how to read that. We meet a lot of people through our consulting practice where we talk to them about different parts of their business. We know what's your per person average, the seasonality of their business, looking at their food costs and labor costs. Yeah, but then, okay, what's your poor cost on liquor? And, oh, we don't really look at that. I'm like, oh, well, okay, we need to take a closer look at that and understanding the importance of numbers. And certainly that's something that I learned about operating a publicly held company at Callaway. There's nothing more important. Matter of fact, you can't go public until you get your financial house in order. And I mean, specifically in order for an offering on the New York Stock Exchange, there's actual requirements. And so, Mike Georgiopoulos and the, and the partners, Dave and Dan Ranzella, they understand the importance of financial metrics. And we're a very financially driven company. Every week, we look at everything, every single detail down, what's selling, what's not selling, a P-mix. We run a lot of reports. We run a lot of ad hoc reports. We analyze those reports with our managers and staff, and we get them invested in understanding the importance of the numbers and the impact they have on our profitability and our ability to grow and pay them more money and be successful. So the better they understand that, the better they are helpful to themselves and helpful to us. What are the top three KPIs you're tracking on a weekly basis? Food cost, labor cost, poor cost. But there's so many things that we look at inside of Restaurant 365. We go down the line, actual food cost versus theoretical food cost is important. Our chefs are very much involved in looking at all these numbers so that we can keep everything in line. We take weekly inventory of everything on every property. Most people do it monthly. We do it every week. Is it a little more labor intensive? Yes. But if something's missing, a couple of cases of Dom or some racks of prime steaks, we can figure out, oh, that went to an event over at this property and it may be there. If you wait a month and then you try to figure out what's gone wrong, that tracking, that backtracking becomes a lot more labor intensive. So again, most of what we do, we like to think is pretty basic stuff, basic business fundamentals. I just think a lot of people want to take shortcuts and take the easy way, or they're used to operating out of pocket and not having that much accountability. We try to hold everybody accountable, but if you don't have systems and processes in place, what standard are you holding them accountable to? And then you're not necessarily being fair. So we, w- we want to be fair with everybody and we want to set the bar. We say, okay, here's what success looks like. And here's the things we're going to be tracking to make sure we're successful together. We make sure they understand what those things are. And then we specifically show them how you manage those things. 
food costs is a good example. You know, all the things you have to look at, what's on the plate. Sometimes we'll look at a, an item as we're tasting it, and we never do a tasting for a new dish that goes on the menu without seeing the food cost sheet. Because there's no point tasting and finding out we love it, and it's 46% food costs. So it's like, let's find out what it costs to make the dish. Let's get it plated the way it should look for the guest, and then let's taste it. And then let's start talking about it. And so we do that. And then sometimes we'll find out, okay, this is great. I don't see the tomato. Oh, I didn't put that on there. Like we account for everything down to the penny, whether it's a piece of parsley or anything else. And that's what you have to do in this business. When you moved to the RMD group, was the goal to stick with consulting exclusively or was it to get into the restaurant industry with a new group and then the consulting kind of organically came out of that? Well, the RMD group that I'm part of Consulting's always been part of what we do. We own and operate restaurants ourselves, and then we manage and operate restaurants and hospitality properties for other people. And we sort of think of it as one of the same. We're the management company for Rustic Root and Huntress and Lumi, even though those are our properties. We're also the management company for the Hard Rock Hotel and Ballast Point Brewing. And even though those aren't our properties, we operate them and support them like they are our properties. So with everything we do for them as consultants is exactly what we do when we operate our own business. We don't change a single thing in terms of how we operate within the parameters of what they'll allow us to do, but that the best way we can be successful for them is to do the same things we do for ourselves, exactly the same things. When did Huntress and Lumi open? Huntress and Lumi, we timed it perfectly so that we could open the doors right at the height of the pandemic, add a little extra challenge to ourselves and make it a little more interesting and exciting for everybody. So right as things were getting going for the pandemic, I would say March, don't hold me to it exactly, but I'd say March of last year, we opened Lumi first about a month before on the rooftop there and then opened Huntress right after. So we were opening, closing, opening and closing all through this first year of the pandemic, laying off employees, hiring back employees, going through the same drama that a lot of operators were, and at the same time, trying to help some of our consulting clients do the same thing and navigate through this process. At the end of the day, I think it made us stronger just knowing that we could survive through this while we watched so many good operators and successful restaurants, whether that's Seersucker or Ocean Air and many others that were standards of the industry here in the gas lamp close and never reopen, the fact that we were able to survive and now be back and thriving again, I think it was helpful to us to validate some of those fundamental things that we did on a day-to-day basis, that those were smart moves. And I look at that from two angles. So the first is business fundamentals and the fact that you guys obviously have like a systematic formulaic strategy to create profitable venues. But on the other side of that, and I was here at the time, they were busy. I mean, as busy as you legally could be, but you guys have also tapped into this demand generation, right? You guys have the ability to pull in a crowd, which I think is this missing element for so many restaurant owners and operators out there. Is that as formulaic? There's a little art and a little science to that, to creating a vibe and creating an energy inside of a property in that when you walk into a nightclub or a restaurant and it's going off, you know what that feels like. You may not be able to write down on a piece of paper that the exact things that are happening, 
but you've experienced it when you've walked into a club, whether it's in Vegas or San Francisco or LA or here or a restaurant, and you just feel you're feeding off of the energy. And it's something that we try to create in the property through the music, through the ambiance that we create, the design of the property, the way we staff, the energy that we try to project when we're in our venues that all lead to this vibe. We are guys who started out in the nightclub business. We started out owning and operating and running nightclubs. And there's a certain energy that has to happen in those properties or people will quickly leave and head out to the next place. And so when you go into Rustic Root or you go into Lumi or even Huntress for that matter, there's an energy there that I think even though they're not nightclubs, that we're trying to create that vibe. We're not trying to be your grandma's steakhouse or just a place where you come and have sushi and leave. We want to create an environment where you want to eat, you want to drink. And then when you're done eating and drinking, you're instead of deciding to go somewhere else, you say, hey, let's stay here. They've got a DJ here. We're done with food. Let's enjoy the vibe and the energy. And so that social dining component is something that's a big part of what we try to create, which we think is a little bit different than how some other restaurant operates. And it's probably a lot of what we learned from the success of some of these nightclubs that we operated. I was having a similar conversation with Mark Birnbaum from the Catch Group. Yep, they're amazing. Amazing. And they've done something very similar. And the competitive advantage that I see there, and I'd love to get your take on this, is that you're not really competing with anyone. It is an entirely unique offering. I've been to both of your locations. I can't tell you why it's cool, right? But it is. It feels cool. And you feel cool when you're in there. And I'm sure it's some amalgamation of lighting mixed with the perfect music, mixed with the perfect volume for that music, with the right people there. And I'm wondering, because San Diego, especially downtown San Diego, is an incredibly competitive market. Do you see other restaurants as your competitors? Are you actively tracking what they're doing and attempting to compete? Or are you playing your own game? We try to focus on what we do and being as good as we can be. I can't say we put our head in the sand. We look at what's out there and how people operate. I'd say we have a friendly competition. We understand what goes on at Arsalan's property and the hipster vibe that they create and what Kettner Exchange and a lot of other places here in San Diego. We're friends with the Cone Group and talk with them and try to share resources as best we can. We try to have an abundance mentality that there's enough people and business to go around that we can all be successful. I think if you have this mentality where it's us or them, it doesn't lead to a healthy environment, a healthy work environment. So we try to think that we can all be successful. Look, there's more steakhouses. When we were started to do Huntress, STK wasn't open. Del Frisco's wasn't open. Born and Raised wasn't open. Cowboy Star was here, but it wasn't a big, you know, San Diego certainly wasn't a steak town. If it was, it was the old school steakhouses of Donovan's and Morton's. No disrespect. Those are good, great operators, but a more classic old school style steakhouse. And now with STK and Del Frisco's and Born and Raised and us, the bar has been raised and the energy level has been raised and it's a whole different environment. So yeah, we watch what people are doing, but we spend a lot of time focusing on what we do and how we can do it better. You talk about the music and the energy. If you knew how much time we spent trying to curate the right music for each venue and looking at every service, every different way we can create that music. Do we create our own loop with our own songs on it? Do we use different companies who can provide it? Do we do different day parts for music, which we do? The music you hear from five o'clock to seven o'clock is very different than what happens from seven to nine while you're dining and very different than how the music transitions at 10 o'clock to raise the energy level. 
And so we look at all of those kind of things. We look at the sound system in the property and can people hold a conversation but still have the energy of the music be loud enough that it's creating a vibe. We have speakers inside each booth underneath the tables so that they can feel that bass when they're sitting and eating. Again, we're not trying to be grandma's steakhouse, so we can do things. Some people might think the music's too loud and the energy level is too high, but that's probably not necessarily our customer. So we're trying to do things a little bit differently. And all of those things you name to get that energy, to get that vibe right are things that we sit down and we still reevaluate, making sure that it smells good in the restaurant and what we're using in all the different parts of the property to make it smell right, look right, sound right, lighting. Every day we're looking at the lighting and changing the volume of the lighting, again, for different day parts through the night. So it might start out a little brighter and then get darker. We make sure there's not too much light coming out of the kitchen. There's so many, we could have an hour and a half conversation about lighting and how you light a venue to create the right energy so that everybody feels comfortable in there, that they look good in the light, they can still see their food, but it creates a sexy environment. And again, that lighting environment is different for each of our venues, depending on the food we serve and the music we're playing and everything else. So they sort of all tie together. Let's look externally and let's talk about the consulting work that you guys do. You come across many locations and I'm wondering, are there universal issues when taking on a new client? Are there common mistakes that you see a lot of folks making? Yeah. Yeah. There's pretty common stuff. Again, it goes back to what we talk to every business that we look at is in a different part of their development, whether they're just getting ready to open their doors, whether they've been open for many years and are looking for a refresh or a rebranding. So the issues that they might have might be different. So whether we're evaluating their business or we're looking at other parts of their business, the development side or the operational side of their business will really depend on at what time we come in to helping them. You're big into mentorship through the SD Sports Innovators, the Chairman's Roundtable. I'm curious to know, what benefit do you get from mentoring others? Well, as surprising as it might seem, when I started doing that at San Diego Sport Innovators, it was because I had come from the sports industry. I developed a friendship with Bill Walton. We were starting this group. We put together 50 C-level executives who would give free mentorship to sports technology companies. Over 60% of those companies are female-owned businesses, which is a nice little side benefit. They don't always get the support that's needed. And I thought I was doing it so that I could give back and take some of the expertise I had in that industry and share it with others. As it turns out, looking back over the last 14 years of doing it, I've gotten a lot more out of it than I've given because I've been able to learn a lot from these young entrepreneurs, a lot of them fresh out of grad school with an idea that they have, their passion their work ethic, their work ethic might be a little different than my 14-hour day because theirs might be a four-hour day that includes a lot of surfing and bringing their dog to work. But the productivity they get in that four hours that they work is very different than how we think about work. And so you learn to work with young people in a different way, but you also learn a lot about from the skills and the expertise that they bring to the table. So I've gotten as a lot more than I've given in all those environments. With the chairman's roundtable, you're mentoring businesses from the $5 million to $50 million range in all different sectors. And what I've learned there, again, what we started this conversation with is that a lot of the business principles that are important and that are fundamental to a successful business, they cross over. Whether we're helping a software company, a restaurant, 
or somebody in a consumer products company, those fundamentals are pretty similar. Their distribution model may be completely different, how they go to market, whether they're a B2B or a traditional brick and mortar business, but the fundamentals many times are the same. And in most cases, the businesses that aren't working as well as they should, they're not paying attention to those fundamentals. You mentioned the work ethic of, we'll call them the millennials and the generation after the millennials, how it's different. And it's definitely different from you and I, but I mean, it's also different from the standards that have been set in this industry. And so I'm curious, as someone that's running hospitality venues, how have you adjusted your own expectations or operations or cultural values within your own companies to compensate for the fact that this is a new generation that doesn't really align particularly well with the values that we came up with in hospitality? Yeah, valid point for sure. Well, look, it's never been tougher to hire good people than it is right now because of COVID and so many people who permanently taken themselves out of the workplace to do who knows what. So that's one aspect of it. But when you're speaking about millennials and all the generations that are coming after them, it's really changing your mindset in terms of how you operate, how you communicate with those folks to get to the heart of what's important to them as opposed to what's important to you. We circle back to what's important to us, which is because if we can't make money and can't be profitable, then we can't continue to operate. But at the end of the day, we still have to find a way to connect with them and their values. And I think every company from Qualcomm to a mom and pop restaurant is trying to figure that out when you're hiring a 19-year-old that wants to take two hours for yoga and bring their dog to work. And their value system is different. I joke about it sometimes. They work differently. They don't necessarily, I don't want to say they don't work hard. They just work different. And what's important to them is different. And if we're not going to take the time to understand that, you're never going to be able to culturally tap in to them and get them to buy into our culture or change our culture so that it's more relatable to them. And so we're constantly training, retraining, coaching our managers so that when they're talking to somebody, I mean, in some of our staff, we might have somebody who's 50 years old and somebody who's 19. And that 19-year-old host has a completely different mindset than that person who's been working in the restaurant industry for 25 years. And so every day we're learning about this and we're reading about it, we're studying it, and we're adjusting our HR practices and everything else we do so that we can get the best out of those people and that they can get the best from us. Because I think at the end of the day, they still want to grow. They still want to learn when they come to work. They still want to feel valued. And if you can tap into those things, what that means to them versus what it means to us, we can keep kind of progressing together. I mean, that's how it's worked out for me professionally is I adopted a philosophy of mutual investment. Basically, accepting the reality of the situation, especially in Los Angeles, which was half of the people that worked for me were one decent audition away from telling me to kiss their ass. That was it. It was a matter of timing in their minds. And so how do you get them invested in your dream? And what I found was through mentorship on a micro level, like person by person, if you're trying to book the job, if you're trying to get an agent, if you're trying to get a manager, these are some universal business practices that could help you do that in an investing in their career outside of the restaurant as opposed to trying to dissuade them from pursuing their own dreams, I found that they were far more invested in my dreams, at least while they were clocked in. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, you shouldn't be in this business in the hospitality industry if you don't love people. And if you love people, you got to study a little bit about psychology and figure out how to get the best out of people. You know, there's that saying, oh, I treat people 
the way I want to be treated. And I don't really like that saying, you should treat people the way they want to be treated. And the only way you're going to be able to treat people the way they want to be treated is to learn about them and how they do want to be treated. I think that old thing of treat people the way you want to be treated, that's making assumptions that they're like you, but they're probably not like you. They're from a different generation and a different mindset. So learn what are their hot buttons, what makes them tick and what gets them excited and then tap into that. I'm curious to know, I know you've done tons of mentorship on your own, but who are your mentors? Who are the people you looked up to that taught you the ways of the world? Well, at Callaway, as I mentioned before, I learned a lot from Ely. He started Callaway Golf in his 70s. He'd already retired. He started Callaway Vineyards. He'd bought some land in Temecula in the 50s and opened one of the first wineries there. Sold that to Hiram Walker. I met him when he was retired living in the desert. And that's how we became friends. And the fact that he started a billion-dollar company in his mid-70s, not really knowing anything about the golf industry, just being a guy who liked golf and had played golf, is pretty amazing. So I tried to hang on his every word for the 13 years that we were together. I learn a lot from the people I work with today. Mike Georgiopoulos, who's the operating partner here, Mikey G, I think you might have met him before, is amazing. Everything I've learned about the hospitality industry, I learned working at his side on a day-to-day basis. So I don't have your typical sports mentors like a lot of people do, but I could say that in both CRT, Chairman's Roundtable, most of those guys in Chairman's Roundtable, they're guys who were the CEO or owner who started Burger King or Qualcomm or big companies. And just sitting in the room with these people, you have an opportunity to listen to how they think, how they analyze things, just the way they ask questions and the way they try to come up with solutions is pretty unique. So both in Chairman's Roundtable and in San Diego Sport Innovators, the CEOs I work with who founded their own sports companies, because we will mentor a company together, I'll learn a lot just watching their process. What are your goals and the goals for RMD over the course of the next 12 to 24 months? When you look forward, what are you looking forward to? We're looking forward to COVID being over by the end of this conversation. That would be great. And getting back to normal or whatever this new normal is going to be. We're pretty excited about the changes that are happening or potentially happening in the way people dine and the way you create a great dining experience. It's interesting, even at Huntress, I think we thought because so many people were eating at home and using mobile apps that a lot of things were going to immediately change in the way people dine. But what we're finding out at Huntress is people, they still want a paper menu. They want to look at it. They love touching that menu. They love interacting with a server who knows what they're talking about, who can guide them through their meal. And they love being in a different environment if it's a pleasant one that's not home. They've been home in their pajamas for a year and a half, and they're hungry to go out and experience that social dining and that in unique environments that's so special about a restaurant property that operates itself the right way. So we're excited to get back to, again, the new normal, expanding and growing our business. We're looking at a beginning of 2022. We're going to start looking for our next location for Lumi that we're going to be opening up probably in Orange County, but could be somewhere else and other locations after that and growing our business and growing our consulting side of our business and taking some of the successful things that we've learned operating profitable businesses like Huntress and Lumi and Rustic Root and sharing that with others in the industry. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I feel like we're all in this together. I don't think I've ever felt more camaraderie 
with an industry in my lifetime. COVID was hard on everybody. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that every industry wasn't impacted, but there are a lot of industries like the fitness industry that did incredibly well during COVID. They sold more pre-core bikes and all those kind of things, exercise equipment than ever before, while our particular industry was probably hit harder than any other industry. So I feel like I have more compassion for looking at a restaurant that's still open and operating and desire to cheer them on and to support their success. I leave bigger tips than I ever did before. And I try to treat the host and the server probably better than I ever did. Not that I didn't treat them well before because I'm always recruiting people, but I have a lot of compassion for what restaurants are going through to stay in this business. So I would say, hang in there, pay attention to the details, be in your business all the time. Like we are part of our success is being there all the time so that we know what's going on and hang in. That's Dana Shirts. For more on the RMD Group, go to rmdgroupsv.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.